Good morning, y'all. We're so glad that you're joining us. Um, I'm going to open us with a scripture this morning, and then we're going to go into worship. Um, What we do know is that if you're in this house this morning, you've come expecting something from Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I've come expecting hope and peace and joy to overflow from the Holy Spirit who lives in me and works in me and works through me. So this morning, I want to read this scripture to us. Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. This morning, what I do know is there are people in this house trusting the Lord for breakthrough. And we are trusting the Lord with you for that breakthrough. And it says this. As you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So will you stand with me this morning as we welcome this Prince of Peace, this Prince, this King of Hope, this King of Glory to come in and to fill you with all hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we thank you, God, that you are with us, you are for us. Lord, and we make room, we prepare a way in the Spirit this morning for you to move among us, Lord. God, we worship you and we honor you and we thank you for every good thing that comes into our lives is from you, Lord. We worship you and we honor you, Lord. And we say this morning, infuse us with hope, infuse us with peace, infuse us with joy, and let your spirit break out among us, Lord, and create breakthrough, Lord, in impossible situations, Lord, because that's who you are. You are the God who delivers. You are the God who rescues. You are the God who heals. And it's because you love. And that is so evident on the cross. It is so evident how much you love us because of what you showed. Lord, we worship you and we honor you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together, y'all. Jesus, you brought heaven down. 
Watching work it for your good. He's not done with what he started. He's not done until it's
Ah! 
we are going to um, have our kids come up. This is a morning that we're going to pray for our kids for back to school as we kind of um, stay in this mode of pleading the blood of Jesus. Um, I love that the scriptures that are founded on this is that when the Lord led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their slavery and in their bondage and their oppression the night that he did that he said take the blood of the lamb that has been sacrificed and apply it over the doorpost and when you do that the angel of death will cross over will pass over your door and the beauty of that is that it is a covenant that was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world and would restore us to the heart of the Heavenly Father who is good and loves us and is perfect in all of His ways towards us. So this morning, as our families, and families, you can gather around with our kids. We want families to come, moms and dads, gather around your children, come stand with them. And if you need to, kids can move up a little bit. Move up so that parents can gather around you. Yeah, scoot up just a little bit. Yeah, there we go. Scoot up just a little bit. There we go. And then what we'd like to do is we'd like to ask our elders and deacons to come gather around. Pat and Lawrence, come gather around with us with our families and our children. What we know in the culture that we live in today is that this generation is attacked beyond belief. And it is one of the greatest attacks um, that has ever happened. But can I tell you, it has happened throughout all biblical times. I was thinking about this time of praying for our kids, and I was reminded of King Josiah, who was king at eight years old. And at, um, during his lifetime, they came across the covenants of the law when they were um, discovering in the temple and when he read them because they had lived in such a perverse and wicked time he actually went into all of the nation and he tore down all the idols he tore down like all everything that was it was in the temples as well it was in the temple of the Lord he brought out all those things and he crushed them and he ground them up into dust and he he there, there was a radical radical Push, get, push back against this kingdom of darkness that had infiltrated in into his generation. And what we're doing today is that we have Esthers, we have Josiahs that are standing among us. These are the children of the servants. They are servants of the Most High God. They are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so as they go into school this year, we want to pray for them. We want to love on them. And we want everything that the Lord has for them to be manifest through their lives, that they are a light into a dark place. And they may not get all of that right now. I'm pretty sure that Josiah at 8 didn't get it, but at 16 when they came across the things of the, the, of the, of the, the law, the commandments of the law, he got it at that point. And so we love our kids in this house, and they are a voice into this generation. 
There is no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. They are full of the Holy Spirit. They hear, they see, they dream dreams. They hear from the living God who has created them and formed them and has a holy plan for them before they were ever formed in their mother's womb. So this morning we're going to gather around them and we are going to pray over them and we are going to bless them. And so would you extend your hands with us this morning just just in honoring and loving who God is in their life and the plan and the destiny and the purpose that he has upon them. Father, we come in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are raising up a generation, Lord, of sons and daughters who know their God and do great exploits, who do signs and miracles and wonders. Lord, we thank you that you are with them and that you are for them, Lord. We declare that no weapon that's formed against them will prosper, Lord. Lord, we speak the life and the light and the surrounding presence and the glory of our God over them and among them and in them and through them, Lord. God, we thank you that you are the God who goes before them, Lord. You surround them, Lord. You protect them from behind. You protect them on every side, Lord. God, we pray for supernatural dreams and visions and words and pictures, Lord, to come into their hearts and minds that would reveal the glory of God, Lord, in their generation, Lord God. Let them have dreams, Lord, of their teachers, Lord. Let them have dreams of their friends at school, Lord God. Let them hear the voice of God in the middle of the night, Lord. God, and we pray right now in Jesus' name that parents, Lord, are attuned to what you're saying by your spirit, Lord. God, thank you that you have marked this generation, Lord. You are the God who marks every generation for kingdom purposes, Lord. And God, we thank you for that right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we bless them, Lord. We bless them with your peace, with your joy. God, we declare that children will lead in this house in so many ways, Lord. They will lead in freedom. They will lead in worship. They will lead in a spirit of kindness and in peace and in joy, Lord. God, let them be the dreamers. Let them be the dreamers and the carriers of our good, good Father into a generation that is so lost. Lord, we worship you and we honor you and we bless you and we bless our children, Lord. We welcome them. We welcome them as the gift that they are, Lord, and we receive them. We welcome them. We rejoice over them, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that there are songs of deliverance that are sung over them over and over again, Lord, and you delight in them. Thank you, Jesus, that you delight in our children, Lord. We worship you, King Jesus. We worship you and we honor you. We're going to just sing this song together over our children, that we plead the blood of Jesus over them. Plead the blood, I plead the blood over my
that there is a standard of the kingdom that raises up against the kingdom of darkness and it overcomes it. Lord, we thank you for our children. Lord, we bless them. Lord, I thank you that your word declares that great will be the peace of our children. And Lord, we do. We release the peace of the kingdom, the prince of peace, Lord, in their lives, Lord, with every circumstance, Lord. God, that you would give them wisdom beyond their years, Lord. Lord, we worship you and we honor you, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness towards us, Lord. We love you. Thank you so much, families. You can be seated. We're so thankful for all of you. Yeah, we love our kids in this house. Y'all are welcome to clap on us. Some of you are starting. We love our, we love our children. We love our families. Amen. Amen. So this morning, if you're a guest with us, you get to be a guest once, and then you become family with us. Um, so go to dothancf.com, do a connection card, let us know a little bit about who you are. We'd love to contact you and get to know you a little bit more. And um, we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. We are going to be kicking off our community groups. Um, and this fall, um, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, I know David Woodham preached into like this you know, this adventure that the Lord has us on and this mission that we've been called to as believers. And what we know is that um, if, you were an, if, you, if you were a doctor or a nurse, you went to school to be equipped to do your job very, very well. And so in the kingdom, we have been given tools to do what we've been called to very, very well. And so what we're doing this semester, we are going to be doing gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can go to dothancf.com and you can pick those out. We have three different times throughout different locations through the city that you can join and be a part of that. Um, it is about, um, it's eight or nine weeks. I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, it's eight or nine weeks for the course. And um, you can actually join us and be a part and grow. How this is so beneficial to you and to me is it allows us to take who we are inside these four walls and have a sphere of influence and bring the kingdom into our workplaces, into our schools, into the grocery store, into the park, into the soccer field. And it's bringing the kingdom of heaven in a supernatural way into a natural world, breaking into that. And so if you want to grow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and have some weapons, you know, you can be loaded up. I love watching sometimes whenever it's, you know, the movies and the action movies. And, man, it's like they've got the strip going across here, the lasso around of all the weapons and the bullets and everything, you know. And so we want you to be geared up with the weaponry of the kingdom to accomplish the mission, the purposes that he has for you and what he has for this house. So join us with that, y'all. Um, multiple ways of giving online if you're um, doing that. Most of us are. Our in-house is in-person is just here at the front. And we're going to dismiss our kids and our youth. Kids are going to be going with Miss Gay Lynn. Our youth are going to be going with the Woodhams over here. And um, thank you so much. We'll be right back with our message, y'all. All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Wave at me if you're still awake. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You go to sleep during the sermon, not during worship, right? That's how that works. We keep it loud so it keeps you awake. 
Uh, no, we had a great worship service. I see a lot of new people here today, so what we do is we have you guys come up and share. Li- no, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> I remember somebody did that one time to me in a church, and I was like, why would you do that to a new person? We just want to kick the wheels, you know, and see if we want to be here or not. So anyway, I hope you've enjoyed the service so far. I, I started a series um, last week um, called First Things First, and we started last week talking about uh, Scripture where Jesus said, if you seek the kingdom first, everything else will be added. And so he's, he talks about all the things like clothes and food and shelter and all the things that we, you know, the basic needs that we have. And what he was saying was is that if you try to go after those things, this is what the world does. If you try to go after those things first, you don't get those things or they don't satisfy you. And you also don't get the kingdom. But if you seek the kingdom first, you get the kingdom and all those things you get and they satisfy you. And so uh, part of the, what we're going after in the series is there's some things sometimes that we think uh, should come first. We have priorities in our world, and, and sometimes they're not quite as informed as they should be from a biblical perspective. So there's a scripture that says um, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And so that's part of what we're challenging is just worldviews and mindsets about what actually should come first in our lives. Sometimes we have priorities I don't know about you, but some, I've discovered I put a lot of time, effort, and energy into some things where the priorities turned out were not in line, and I had to go back. They all fell apart anyway, and I had to go back and rebuild from scratch. So part of what we want to do is, uh, is start from first things first. If you get the first things right, everything else will follow. It's kind of what the series is about. So I want to talk about um, some psalms this morning. How many of you guys like psalms? Anybody's favorite psalm, Psalm 23? Yeah, it's a really good psalm. There's a whole lot of psalms, right? So King David was called the the, uh, psalmist of Israel is one version of it. But there's a place in 2 Samuel that talks a little bit about him. And and it's talking about the last things David said. And and it just talks about who he was, how to identify him. He was a great king. He was a great warrior. But listen to how it kind of identifies him. This is 2 Samuel 23.1. It says, these are the last words of David. So this is what he said right before he passed on. He says, these are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. That's a pretty bold statement. Like uh, the Bible said he had, um, he had a heart after God. But if you read his story, he was a pretty good sinner, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, but what, was, what you always saw with David is when he sinned, he would do something like he numbered Israel. So he, he, he went after the armies, you know, and we're going to do it the world's way. And then God challenged him on it because that's not how God designed him to be a warrior or to lead the kingdom. And every time the prophet would come and challenge him, which sometimes those prophets would challenge kings and it was the last thing that they did, right? But every time he was challenged, the Bible said he would repent. He would take on a new mind. He would realize that he had been thinking worldly ways as like worldly kings, and he would take on a new mind. That's what the word repentance means. It means to, to think differently, to think like God. So often we, we equate it with coming to the altar and praying or being sad, and th- that's part of, that's some of the emotion of it. But the end of repentance is to think differently. But this is what it says. It says, he was exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. Another version said, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So what was interesting about David is um, he wrote most of the Psalms. There were some other people who wrote some Psalms, but the majority of the Psalms were written by him. And so part of this story is when he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence into Jerusalem, 
He sets it up in a tent, okay? So this is a picture, sort of like a picture of the tent of tabernacle like Moses. The difference was that there was no, in the, in the tabernacle tent, there were three places, right? There were the holy place, uh, there was the outer court, the inner court, um, and, the, and the holy of holies, right? And so in this tent, he set up the Ark of the Covenant in the tent, and what he did was a little, little bit different. He actually assigned Levites um, people who would sing songs, and, and they were there 24-7. It was the first 24-7 prayer and worship time, right? And so he would, he would appoint them to sing songs, and they would write the songs here, there in the presence of God so often. And so when you read a lot of the Psalms, especially the ones that David wrote, um, imagine him sitting outside the tent knowing that the presence of God is finally back in Israel, right? So, it, so it's a, oftentimes a celebration, but also it was written throughout his lifetime when there were circumstances and there were challenges that would t- try to tell him a different story about who God was, who he was, who he was in God, and, his, and God's plan for his life and the plan for Israel in, in, you know, in terms of his role as the king. So again, he instituted the structure of the Psalms. He brought the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. Um, it was a little bit different than the Tent of Tabernacles. In the Tent of Tabernacles, blood was offered. We, we sang Plead the Blood earlier. It's a new song. It's a really, really good song. And uh, I talk to new people sometime, and they're like, you know, I, I'll ask them, hey, what was different in church that, you know, maybe kind of caught you off guard? It's like, you guys talk a lot about blood. I'm, that's a little bit disconcerting, if I'm honest. It's like, you're talking about sacrifices and blood and, you know, and dying. And, and I'm like, uh, I don't have a frame of reference for that, right? But, but Israel did. They had a frame of reference because blood was the only, only economy. Um, if you sinned, a, a lamb had to be brought and it had to be spotless. And again, this is a symbolism and a picture of Jesus and the Messiah come, who was the lamb slain before the foundation of time, right? So symbolism lead from in the old covenant leading to the new covenant. What was interesting about David's tabernacle, David's tent, was that he, there was no blood sacrifices. There were only spiritual sacrifices, which is a picture of the new covenant in the old covenant. So he, David had a glimpse of what, God, what God's plan was ultimately in the future, and he brought it to the, the, the nation of Israel in his time. It's an interesting concept, and it's really amazing. About, King David's amazing in a lot of ways. But um, there weren't any blood sacrifices. They would bring the sacrifice of praise, which meant to praise God, to talk about how amazing he, he was. We're going to talk about ascribing and, and describing and prescribing in just a minute. It's kind of what this message is about. But he would ascribe things to the Lord. He would talk about God, oftentimes in the circumstances that was telling him something different than what he was saying. So when he would come and bring a sacrifice of praise, sometimes that mean, meant he did not want to praise God. You ever been there? Maybe you were there this morning, <laughs> right? It's like, God, if you knew the circumstances, like God doesn't know your circumstances. I always think that's funny. God, if you knew, (laughs) I don't think you understand what omniscient is when it comes to Godhood, right? Like he knows everything all the time. What you're really saying is, Lord, do you care? Right? That's really what we're getting at. When the circumstances try to tell me something about God, the question in my heart that arises is, did God really say? Is God really kind? Is he good? Does he really want to rescue is he worth worshiping? Is he honorable? Is he, can I glorify him because he's worthy of glory? That's really the questions in our heart. And part of what David set up was, he said, sometimes when you come, you need to come with a sacrifice of praise. Right? You enter his courts with thanksgiving in your heart. That means there's something you're going to, you have to do something about this. You can't just go, God, you do it all. Like if, if God wanted to do it all, he would have made puppets and not humans, right? He would have made robots and not humans, and he, but he didn't do that. 
So most of the songs were written in front of that tent. So he was establishing a biblical pattern. So when he did this, this is where you find this in, in Scripture. This is 1 Chronicles 16 and 7. It says that day, so, so he brings in the Ark of the Covenant. He, he gives, he gives uh, food and, and treasures to every single person in the city. So he, he celebrated the ark coming back by, by showing God's goodness through him as the king, being good to the people. So he was, he was uh, establishing something. This is what it says, 1 Chronicles 16, 7. That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord. These were the Levites. In this manner. So that phrase sometimes is a throwaway phrase. We read it and we pass right over it. But it's really, 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 really important. Um, there's a, a concept in theology called first principles, and I'm, I'm going to get into it as we kind of go into this series. But the way first principles work is um, if you want to know how God is about something, find out the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture. It's called the law of first mention or the principle of first mention. We use it often in theology. Genesis is full of that. First marriage is mentioned in, in the Bible. First sin is mentioned in Genesis. Um, the first um, sibling rivalry is mentioned in Genesis. First sacrifice mentioned in Genesis, and on and on and on and on. There's just tons of them there. And so often you see the beginning of something that now you can trace throughout all of Scripture until you see the fulfillment of, that, of those principles in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about him all the time, right? So he says, in this manner, this is how you ought to praise God. This is how you ought to do your songs to the Lord, the sacrifices of praise. And then he goes through the next um, 20-something verses, and he, and he sings the song. And, and it's a, you can find pieces. What he sings here are pieces of psalms you find later on in, in, in the book of Psalms, which is really, it's kind of an amalgamation of, of a bunch of different songs that he's going to then turn into bigger songs later on. But verse 28 is really interesting because he, he kind of settles it with this. He's basically saying, sing the song, but this is why you do this. This is why you do it in this manner, and this is why it's so important. And if you do it differently from this, you will not get the same results. One of the things you hear me say all the time is if, if you do God's thing God's way, you get God's results. If you do your thing God's way, first of all, that's not possible, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> God's way is not going to be necessarily your thing. If you try to do God's thing your way, it also isn't going to work because those methods matter. So the patterns that the Bible talks about in Scripture are really, really important, and we go after those a lot when we teach into it. Verse 28, this is the pattern. He finishes with, ascribe to the Lord. Now we're going to get into those ascribe, describe, and prescribe in just a second. But the root word is scribe, and it means to write, write it down. In other words, to, to take it out of what you're thinking and processing, and put it down on a piece of paper. Make it permanent, as it were. Right? So he says, ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Isn't that interesting? Not just glory, not your version of glory, but glory that's actually do his name. Because who he is is how you glorify him. By saying that, by agreeing with it, by talking about that, and praising him for it. It goes on, it says, bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Not your version of that, but the truth. And so scripture goes after something that in our time, we often don't get and the world definitely doesn't get. The world's culture, the thinking of the world is, you know, that, that truth is, you know, malleable. <laughs> right? There's your truth and my truth and that person's truth and that person's truth. And that, in truth, is a lie. 
there's only one truth. Everybody else has an opinion. So maybe your opinion matches the truth. Maybe your opinion doesn't match the truth. But it will never, ever change what is true. And that comes from God. And that's why the Bible says when you glorify him, when you ascribe to him, when you write down and, and, and give to him what is his due, you can't just do it in your version of it. You have to do it his way. So he's giving us a pattern. And the pattern is to ascribe first. When you've done everything else, make sure that you're telling God and you're reminding God who he is. Like God remind, needs reminding of who he is, right? So if God doesn't need reminding of who he is, then why do you think he tells you to say it? And to do it. Because you need reminding. I need reminding, right? Which is true. So here's the problem. In life, and I know this, I've been serving the Lord for 30-something years now. I gave my life to Jesus when I was 19 years old, and it was 19 years too late. <laughs> I'd made a lot of mess and had a lot of wrong patterns inside my head from worldly thinking, my own version of everything. I, and, and it's taken me years to get rid of all that crazy, wrong, terrible thinking. And if I'm honest, it's not a complete deal. That's not going to be finished till I'm in heaven, right? But the things that I build into now are going to determine what can come to me here, how I can be used to see God's glory into the earth. You know, we were praying over the kids. And part of what we're doing is we're praying these things about our kids. But you as parents have to speak those things and bring those things to bear into your kid's life because they're going to get a version of truth at school. They're going to get a version of truth from their friends. They're going to get a version of truth for, from their own minds and their own experiences and their own traumas and their own circumstances and everything else. And it's your job as, as parents to pour into them truth, who God is, who they are in God, and on and on and on. And if you don't do that, somebody will. So if you, if the last thing that you can be as a, as, a, as a parent is passive. The last thing you can be as a husband to your wife is passive. Last thing a wife can be to her husband is passive. Don't be passive. So the challenge that, again, we live in, because we live in a broken world, um, often what happens is we see unbelief all around us. We have unbelief often in our own heart. And the danger is it tends to bring about a hardness of heart. If you will, almost like a, a cellophane, even if it's a thin layer, it's like a cellophane around your heart. It's, it's like a crust, if you will. And, and what that can do, that hardness of heart, that, that the brokenness and pain of the world and the, and the things that have happened to you, lost, seeing people pass away, you prayed, you trusted the Lord for things and it didn't come to pass the way you thought it was, all of that begins to create a crust around you and before long, the words of God, no matter how powerful they are, begin to bounce off your hardened heart. So the Bible goes after that. It says, don't have a hardened heart. And the danger for us is we, we say things like, well, we, you know, if you knew my story, you would understand why I have a hardened heart. God didn't say you wouldn't get a hardened heart. He just says, don't let that heart stay hard. And so there's some things that you and I can do, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 13, 15. This is uh, uh, the New Living Translation, which, by the way, is not a translation. It's a paraphrase, so it's a little bit misleading. <laughs> but it's helpful sometimes to put it in terms that, that, are, uh, that are more like, what we can understand. Uh, it says, For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes can't see. And their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand. And then it says this, And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. 
So you always get this picture of the Pharisees, like a bunch of religious jerks. And then I, you know, became relig- religious jerk, and I thought, well, you know, they weren't such bad people, <laughs> right? We always tend to judge. We always tend to judge them a little harshly until we recognize ourselves in these stories, and then we want to cry out for mercy. Like everybody else, I'm going to judge you because you did me wrong, but I'm, I want your kindness and your forgiveness and mercy when I've done you wrong, right? Isn't that funny how we do that? And we challenge our kids with that, but we we become the same way if we're not careful. And so what he's saying is, if you allow your heart to become hardened then not only can you not see, you, you, you won't let God heal the brokenness that has caused the hardened heart. And it's, a, it's a, a really, really challenging place, and we see it in the church all the time. So what happens is the glory of God is diminished. You stop seeing him accurately. You, start, you stop seeing him for who he is, and you see, see him through the lens of your pain and the lens of your circumstances, the lens of your trauma. And the problem is the lens is temporary and God is forever. So it's helpful to recognize that that's a true thing. The challenge is that the scars on my back from years of slavery, I had 19 years of slavery to a wrong mindset, a wrong understanding of who God was and who I was and who people around me were. 19 years of slavery, 19 years of hurt and pain and heartache. Doesn't seem like a long time, but it was long enough to create a mindset in my head of slavery. So here's a phrase, and this is going to help us kind of get through the rest of this message. If you have the heart of a free person, but the mind of a slave, you will not live like an overcomer. Let me say that again. If you have the heart of a free person, God's come and he's rescued you. You, you, you would say he saved you. You have a relationship with him. You have a heart of a free person, but your mind has never been transformed from the mentality of slavery, then you will never live as an overcomer in this world. Doesn't mean you're not saved. Doesn't mean heaven awaits you. It does. But you will never live the life of inheritance that Jesus meant for you to have in this world. For 400 years, in the, in the time of Israel, for 400 years, every single Israelite had borne the lashes of the slave master. For 400 years, for 10 generations, no Israelite was ever born that did not know slavery and slavery alone at least in their practical application. But they had the word of God and they had the promises of God the entire time they were in slavery. God saying, this is what I'm gonna do even though these are the circumstances you see. And there's now this challenge between, do I, I see, I feel, I recognize, I mean, in, in, the, in, the, you know, the, the brokenness and the hurt of my circumstances are real and true and valid and I can't deny that. And yet God says, I wanna talk to you about a different reality. You, over here is a little R reality, right? God is talking about a big R reality. They're different realities, but they sometimes can feel, this one can feel more real than the one that God is promising us. So when God says, I'm gonna set people free, there was a willing, willing heart, but still a, a slave's mind. So for 400 years before the Messiah came, so remember slavery comes, and they come out of the slavery, and, and the, the story is told about how they come out of slavery, and we can get to that in just a second. And then at some point, the end of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Micah, and there's 400 years of silence, 400 years of not hearing the word of the Lord, 400 years of, of tyrants coming in and enslaving the people of God until the Roman Empire had come, and we know this story had completely overwhelmed and, and caused the Israelites to submit to everything that they want them to do. They did it through the power of the sword, and they were really, really good at it. And then in this moment, 
in this moment, having had 400 years of silence, and then the story of 400 years of slavery where no one ever knew anything but slavery. Now, no one's ever known anything but silence. And then in this moment, a prophet comes, the last of the Old Testament prophets, a prophet by the name of John the Baptist, who stands up and says this, repent. And we look at that and go, my interpretation is that, is you guys should just really cry and be really sorry for what you've done. And again, that's an emotional part of it. So nothing wrong with that. But the Bible says there's a sorrow that leads to repentance and there's a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. You can be sorry for something and never repent. So what does repent mean? It literally means in this, in, in this phrase, in the New Testament, it's, it's the Greek word metanoia, which, where we get met, metamorphosis, like, a, like a, a, um, you know, a bug turning into something else. Metamorphosis, an actual transformation and change is what it means. And so the Bible says to repent and believe the gospel. To, to repent is something you have to do. You have to, it's taking on a new mind. And then believing is also something you have to do. You have to move from this mindset, this way of thinking, into a new way of thinking. And that's real easy to say, but real, real hard to do. So listen to some of the promises, because going, we're going back now to the Old Testament. And so God comes to a man named Abraham, Genesis 15, 7. He says, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So he's been talking to Abraham about something new. And he's challenged Abraham to leave everything he knows and understands and has, has been his whole life and to come into something brand new. He challenges him to do that. Listen to what Abraham says after that. But Abram said, because he wasn't Abraham yet, he's still Abram. Abram said, sovereign Lord. In other words, I believe you're in charge of the whole thing. I believe you're in control of the world. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So think about this for a second. The God of the universe just came to you and had a conversation with you and told you he was going to do something. And you have the audacity to question his character. But we do that all the time, don't we? So, so again, it's, it's easy to beat him up, but he was just being honest. He said, how, how can I know? So God says, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to swear an oath, right? And the Bible goes on in the future and says, says that God swore an oath, not just to Abraham, but to you and I, that he would rescue us from our, our sin. This is the beginning symbolism of what God was going to do in fulfillment of Jesus on the cross and how he was going to rescue you and I from our sins, right? So he tells him, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And when God cut the covenant with Abram, Abram was there, but not there. The Bible said God put him to sleep and then cut a covenant with him. And the indication that he gave Abram, because normally a covenant was a, was a contract between two people, only this wasn't a contract between two people. Usually, if you'll do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. God's covenant was, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter to me whatsoever because I'm not making a covenant with your inability to, to come you know, to be true to your promises because that's where we always fail. He said, I'm going to cut a covenant and I swear to you that I'll bring you into this land and your children into this land. I swear to you. And he cut a covenant. God cut the covenant between himself and himself. Okay? And he said, you, Abram, get to be the beneficiary of the covenant I have made towards you. Not with you, but towards you, right? Also with you, but you, you get the point. So this is so important to God that he keeps telling the Israelite people this story. 
He tells Abraham, and he tells Abraham's sons, and he tells the sons of the sons of the sons, and he keeps coming after them, and they keep grumbling and complaining because their circumstances seem to tell them a different story. And God says, but I promised you. Did you not hear me promise you? Is anybody have, have we, you know, we have, this morning we have prayer for kids. Anybody tell your kid, make the mistake of telling your kid about something you're going to do in the future? You ever do that? We're going we're gonna to get, get ice cream. And they're like, now? We're going to do it now? And you're like, nope, not now. And, and you realize your mistake. I have done it now because they have no concept of time, do they? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are they where? And you got them, you know, duct tape over their mouth and they're in the trunk and they're still going, are they there yet? Are they there yet? Right? It's just in their nature because they have no concept of time. We are the same way. We do the same thing with God. Even though we can have a little more concept of time, we don't have the same concept of time that God does. So be careful when God promises you something. Be careful not to interpret it with your own mind and your own, your own understanding. That's why the Bible says if you, if you don't lean into your understanding, you'll get more from God, right? So God goes on in Exodus, okay? This is the, the people of Israel coming out. He says, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See how he keeps telling the story, right? Appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I've seen what has been done to you in Egypt. So there were 400 years with the promise. They were born into slavery, but they had the words of God available to them. So they had the little R reality that they were living in, but they had the big R reality that the Lord was promising them, Right? 400 years go by, and he told Abraham, actually, there's going to be 400 years of slavery. So it literally, this information was available to the people of Israel in their slavery. But because they embraced only the slavery and not the promise, they, they gained a mindset of slavery, even though in their heart they read that they were free. See how that works? And it works the same way with you and I. Listen to what he said. He says, I've watched over you, and I've seen what the people, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised, past tense, to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaanites and all these otherites. And then he gets to, he says, and a land flowing with milk and honey. I promise you this. I promised your fathers. I promise again to you. Not I'm promising to you. I'm reminding, that you, reminding you that I've already promised this. And what I say is true, Right? So it goes on, more promises in, in that book, Exodus 13, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, uh, verse 30, or chapter 32, 13, this land I promised them, the land I swore, the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers. And I could go on and on and on and on, but the challenge was he kept having to come back and remind them because they kept grumbling, grumbling and complaining and ascribing to the Lord what was in their own hearts. Lord, you lied to us. You've not told us the truth about this. So now keep that in mind as we talk about your promises, the promises that the Lord has given you, that we prayed and we sang and we led worship this morning. So we, we get a sense from God's perspective. They plundered their way out of Egypt. Remember, Moses comes in, there are 10 plagues. As they're leaving, listen, we, we sang it, the, the, the door, Karen alluded to it when she was sharing, the, the, that the blood over the doorpost was God's promise that when the angel of death came to kill the, the oldest son, Right, And there's a million tons of symbolism in that when it talks about Jesus being God's son. But the Bible says when the angel of death saw the blood over that, that the blood had been pled. We were, they were pleading the blood, right? They used a lamb, but was symbolic of who Jesus was going to be in the new covenant. And the angel of death would come and see the blood, and he would pass over them. And the judgment that was due them would not come to them. Why? Because somebody else 
had paid for that price. That's the lamb, the spotless lamb that was sacrificed, going eventually to be the spotless lamb Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. So here's what happens. They go that night. They're slaves in Egypt. The next morning, the Bible says they plundered Egypt of all its gold. Tonight, they're slaves. The next morning, every single person who left Egypt was a millionaire. They all had won the lottery, and the same thing that happens today happened to them. Some poor person became super rich, but had the same mind that he had the day before he won the lottery. Ever notice this? One guy watched, he won the lottery, and he went out and bought $100,000 worth of shoes. He literally bought a house so he could put all of his shoes in it. This is what poor, I know I grew up poor. This is what poor people do when we get money. We're just like, I'm going to go crazy. You know, and then, and, then, and then we don't know who our friends are. You see, that, and what happens is, the reason why is we don't have, when we gain money slowly, we learn how to treat money appropriately and biblically. But if we gain it quickly, we don't. We have the same mentality. And this is what happened to these guys. Listen, they saw, they were led away by a cloud, right? During the day, there was a cloud leading them. During the evening, there was a fire by night that led them. Where did it lead them? Hear this. They had the promise now. They had the freedom. They had all the wealth. Everything, all the indicators, even the circumstances now had told them, had reminded them this was the promise. And now it's come true. And look, God's leading you out. And they're, woo, they're singing, they're partying, they're having a good time. And then they get to the big sea, right? And they're like, uh-oh, um, now the sea's in front of Oh, no, this is impossible. We could never cross the sea. Why? Because they have a slave mentality and they have to do it in their own strength. And then they look back and they see the Egyptians come and go, oh, so now we, got no, we can't go back and we can't go forward. I guess we're dead. Literally. Go back and read it. That's what, they, they said things like and later on they go to the Mara where the, where the waters are bitter and God said, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'm going to make sure you have enough. I'm, I'm going to give you everything and the manna, right? And they still grumbled and complained. Why? Because they had a mentality of slavery even though their hearts were free. Now, how does that apply to you? God led them out of Egypt, reminded them with the wealth, reminded them that he, he had taken judgment away because of the blood, He'd done all that. He led them visually. They literally saw God move in a cloud and a fire. And they get to that place. And the moment circumstances changed, they forgot the promises of God. And they looked back and said, I guess God brought us out here to kill us. Literally, in, when they were at Marah, they said it this way. There weren't enough graves in Egypt, so God had to bring us out in the desert to, to destroy millions and millions of us because there are more graves out here. That's what they said. So you see the mentality. So in this process, God is, he's over and over and over making the promises. But this is what they were saying about him. He led them to an impossible situation. Why do you think he did that? I mean, the simple version is, well, if you can do it in your own strength, do you really need God? Nothing wrong with you doing things in your own strength. The Bible talks about co-laboring and co-working with God. It's wonderful and we should do that. But God will always, always lead you to a place where the situation is impossible unless he's in it. Why? He wants to draw you into a relationship with him. That's why he didn't just give you a bunch of rules and regulations and leave you out there. If you think that's what God's like, it's not at all what he's like. That's why the Bible talks about the law could never save anyone. Why? Because it's rules and regulations. What were they for? To show you that you couldn't do it 
yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be holy. You cannot be perfect like God is perfect. And that's what he requires. So he sent his son on your behalf so that he could bring perfection and make it available to you. But what do we do? Every time the circumstances change, change and it becomes impossible without God, we ascribe to God the thing that's in our own hearts. So I could go on, on and on and on. But what they would say is, it's almost as if God gives us a little bit of hope and then snatches it away. And so we justify, what we do is we justify our anger with God. And I'm telling you something, I'm not telling you theory. I'm telling you stuff I've lived. We, we, it, it feels like hope is there, and hope, hope is, and it's beautiful. And you're just like, yes, Lord, I believe you. And it gets more and more impossible and more and more impossible until the point where you begin to say, Lord, did you, did you offer me hope only to snatch it away? Is that the kind of God you are? And the answer is no, that's the kind of person you and I are. We are broken and hurting, and we do desperate and terrible things because of our brokenness and hurt, but it doesn't change the fact that someone sins against us. You know what we end up doing? We sin against somebody else. So I could literally go on and on and on, but Jesus goes on to this and reiterates this in the New Testament. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? So he's asking you as fathers and mothers, if your kid asks you for bread, would you give him a rock? Would you do that? What kind of father would you be to do that? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? He asks for some sustenance that's going to build him up, and you give him something poisonous and venomous, and it's a predator, and it's going to attack him and kill him. If you then, though you are evil, so he's making a comparison. He's saying, if you, with the tendencies of your own broken heart and what sin has done to you and what you've done because of sin, if you being evil know how to give good, in other words, you can overcome that mindset to give good things to your kids, listen to what he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Reminder, over and over and over again, God's saying, I swore to you an oath that I would bring you out of this country and I would put you here. I swore to you to, to, you know, I would rescue you. I will heal you. And the list goes on and on. I will provide for you. It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter what the economy looks like. I will provide for you. But so often we want to do it in our own strength and we get ourselves in trouble and then we begin to ascribe to God something that's not true about God. I shared this earlier. If you have the heart of a free person, but the mind of a slave, you will not live like an overcomer. And there's something that we add. And it will keep you from God's promises. So look at what happened to these, these, these people from Israel. This is Numbers 14, 21. It says, nevertheless, as surely, this is God talking to them. After over and over and over and over again, he's reminded them of his goodness and his promises, and they refused to believe him no matter what he said. He said, nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. To ascribe to God something that is not God is to test God. God. It's to say to him it's not true about who he is and what he's done. He goes on, he says, not one of them will ever see the land I promised an oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Remember, this is the old covenant, so there's better news, so don't get too sad too quick. But, but this is what he said, you, you refused to believe me, right? So he's, because they would not hear the oath that he had promised originally, he swore something else. You will not go in. 
And he said, he com- listen to what he said, though. It wasn't just anybody or everybody. He said, to those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt, in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me th- these ten times. He's saying, the, the inheritance that you long for is connected to your willingness to obey God. Let me say this again. The inheritance that you know, you sense, the hope that's in you, that inheritance is available to you, but it's not guaranteed because there's a part that you play. Numbers 14, 27. I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them. Now he's talking to Moses to tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. See, this is what's so frightening. And this is why it's so challenging, especially in the church. I, and I'm not, again, it's not theory. I have to deal with this. I'm not preaching to you before I preach to me. I promise you that. I'm preaching me, to me today about this. He, he says, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. What are you ascribing to the Lord? Are you saying, God, I do believe you in spite of the circumstances? I don't completely understand it, but I don't question your character or your nature. I know you. How do I know you? Because I've seen what you've done in the past. I've seen what you've done in my life in the past. He says, in this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Again, he he made us understand why. So here's what's really interesting about that. Two people went in to to this promised land. Two people, right? They were part of ten men who went in and looked at the land. And eight of them saw something that wasn't true. They agreed with what the, the, the circumstances were saying. He said, we're like grasshoppers. There are giants in the land. And the two, other two said, yes, that's true. But this is what God says about us. We will surely go in and take this, this land. This God has promised us. All of these millions of wealthy Israelites living in the desert never went in wandered around for 40 years until they all died. Everybody who was over that 20 years, who had the ability to make the decision about who God was and what he promised them, all of them died except two people. I, I tried to do the math on it, and I'm horrible at math, and I couldn't come up with the percentages that would make anybody happy. Right? But what was the truth? Two people believed God. Millions of people did not. So what does that tell you? It tells you you have to really make a decision to believe God because the circumstances are easy to believe. So it goes on. This is Romans 12 too, because here's the question I have for you. What can be done about that in our own hearts? This is what Romans 12 too says. This is the NIV. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but, and it's implying the word you. So I'm going to put it in here. You do not conform to the pattern of this world. But you be transformed, how? By renewing your mind. Not getting a new heart. They already had a new heart. They have a new nature. But their mind has not been transformed. And we go after this all the time. Matter of fact, this is who, who we are as a church. We said that, that DCF transforms lives, right? By encountering grace in the Holy Spirit. Transformation is what we do and what we emphasize here. So he goes on, he says, then you will be able to test and approve God's will is. In other words, if you change your mindset, don't be conformed to the world, and you let God transform your mind by renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, you will walk into the inheritance that God has for you. 
Here's what's interesting. God, even in the old covenant, had grace for you. So the millions of people who died in the wilderness, God did not punish them in in the sense that he wouldn't take care of them. The Bible says that for the 40 years they wandered in in, in the wilderness, they had food, they had water, they had everything they needed. Their clothes and their shoes never wore out. Now that's a miracle of sustaining them even in their unbelief. So God's kindness to you is he's not going to say, you know what, you screwed up, you refused to believe who I am, I'm taking my salvation back. He's not going to do that. So if you're a believer this morning, don't hear me saying that if you don't obey the Lord, you're going to go to hell because that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not true. If if God was that gracious and that kind in the old covenant, how much more is he in the new covenant? And he reminds us, why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you do the disciplines of a disciple? And the answer is because it's very easy to forget. The Bible even talks about it. It says, you see yourself in the word of God and you recognize the need for God and his nature and his character and his kindness and the things that you are responsible for in co-working and co-laboring with God. And the second you walk away from that, it's like walking away from a mirror and forgetting what you look like. We need remembering. We need to be reminded. So Romans 12, 2 says, this is what you do. You change the way you think. Romans, in the New Living Translation, which is not a translation, but paraphrase, (laughs) don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't do that. But I, if you knew, don't, please stop giving God excuses. First of all, he's not going to hear it. He's not going to, oh, oh, it's, oh, yes, really tough for you. I totally, but this guy over here, he was, you know. He didn't have any of your problems or your issues. Quit whining like a baby. That was very pastoral. I know it was shepherding. Y'all felt the kindness of my heart in that, right? (laughs) Paul said it this way. By now, you ought to be teachers, but I'm having come back and teach you again. There's, There's a rebuke sometimes that comes to our heart that says, enough already. Quit being a baby about this and grow up. My my favorite version is put your big boy pants on or dress. Well, I have to be careful with that nowadays, but you know what I'm saying, right? Put your big boy clothes on, right? Why? Because you can. God never asks us to do something that is impossible for us to do. Anything he challenges you with, you can do it, but you have to do it not in your own strength in his. And it forces you to realize you need to submit and that God's version is always better than yours. You know what? I don't like the way God says, you know what? I think I should be able to sleep with whoever I want to before I get married. Well, good luck with that, right? Good luck with that. Go do that. Have, have fun. Enjoy yourself. You're like, then the Bible says it this way, that the, that the pleasure of sin lasts for a second, right? But the end of it is death. And not necessarily eternal. Death to the relationship, death to your own value as a person, especially women. Why does God do it? God's up there in heaven. God invented sex, people. He's not against it, right? He just said, get married first. Why? Because it turns out sex creates babies sometimes, Right? So God says, here's a thought. What if you got together and you were committed so that when you have babies, those babies would grow up with two parents and not one? There's a thought. So God's not anti-sex. He just says, hey, you can't do it in your own strength, in your own way. I have a better version of it. And we all know this is true. So I'm closing with this. This is Romans 12, 2 in the paraphrase. Don't copy the behavior of the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person how? How do you let God transform you? Did, you? did you realize that you were not letting God transform you? 
You blame it on your circumstances. You blame it on all kinds of things. But the truth is, if we take personal responsibility in our, in our own hearts, we would put our big boy pants on and say, God, help me understand what I'm doing that's keeping me from being transformed in my mind. You know what happens? People in, in church communities, family, will come and tell you, and they'll say hard things to you because they love you. And then you get mad at them and ghost them and push them away. If you do that enough, at some point they're going to say, they don't want to hear the truth, so why am I going to waste it on them? And they'll stop telling you the truth, and you get away scot-free. You're like, you know what? I, it's, it was easy. Now I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. But now you're going to suffer all the circumstances, and you're going to be alone while you're doing it. It's a horrible, horrible scenario that the enemy leads us into. He says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, if you let that happen, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And, and the intimation from that is you will walk in the full inheritance that God has for you. I can't tell you how many times I've chosen to do what the Lord told me and everybody around me telling me how wrong I am. The whole world is saying it doesn't work. The culture is saying it. The educational system is saying it. Politics, everybody's saying it's wrong except God. And I look at God and go, if God be true, let every man be a liar. Hear the word let. That means you have to make a decision. Let God be true and let everybody else be a liar, including me. Because I lie to myself all the time. So how do you do that? He taught us in the Bible, and we talked about earlier about describing. I talked about this last week, and I'm finishing with Psalm chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, you can. Last week, we talked about Psalm 31. Here's the way the structure of the Psalms was geared. Here's what you should do and how you deal with circumstances of life and how you glorify and honor God and how you move into walking into the fullness of your inheritance. God's made some promises to you through Scripture. He's made promises to you personally, Right? So all of that is, this is what God is saying. This is what my circumstance is saying. What am I going to say? Who am I going to agree with? So how does the Bible do that? You describe, first of all, right? What, what does that look like? Describe. It means to write something down, but, but the, the word D is very interesting. It means, to, it means down. That's what that prefix means. So you go down to the description of what's going on in the circumstances. You write about the facts you're facing, your current circumstances. This includes your fears, failures, frustrations, friends. It also describes the actions and words and plans of those who would hurt you. And then sometimes it even voices concerns about the Lord. I feel like, God, you've forgotten about me. That's different than, God, you have forgotten about me. There's nothing wrong with being honest about how you feel. But just understand your feelings are great servants and terrible masters. Amen? So then you go into ascribing. This is what Paul, I mean, what David said. You, this is what you have to do first. These, they come in a different order sometimes, but if you haven't ascribed, what, you're, what happens is your description becomes your prescription. So listen to what a scribe looks like. It says, we have to believe God. Everything flows from that. If not, let me say it again, the description of your circumstances and problems, problems becomes the prescription for your life. Your circumstances and problems define you. That's what happens if you do it this way. But if you ascribe to God, you give God the glory that's due his name. Declare what you know the scripture says about him. Try to exaggerate his goodness, his greatness. You can't do it, but try. 
his nature, declare who he is, focus on his attributes, his works, remember what he's done for you, those you know and what he's done for them and those you've read about. Remember his words, remember what he has said in scripture and what he's promised to you as well. And then after you've done that, then you prescribe. What does that look like? This is a mixture of petitions, prayers, memories of previous encounters, storytelling, history, lessons, declarations, and testimonies about what, what's going to occur. Talk about your desires. Ask for hoped out, hoped for outcomes. Lord, I know this person has a mind of their own and they have to choose, but Lord, my heart is that they would be rescued and they would save, be saved. That's the prescription prayer. Those who oppose you, pray for them. Jesus said, pray for those who abuse you. It doesn't say keep letting them abuse you. That's not what the scripture says. But it does say pray for them because maybe they're too far gone, but maybe they're not. Maybe what they're doing to you is because somebody did that to them. That doesn't make it okay, but that's how it makes it easier to pray for them. Pray for God's fame. Pray for an outcome that brings God glory. So here's the example, and I'll close with Psalm chapter 3. Psalm, this is describe the circumstances, verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of, saying of me, God will not deliver you. That's describing the circumstances. And then you ascribe greatness to God. Verse three, but you, Lord. See that word, but? This is what's happening. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head. I call out to the Lord and he answers from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. And then you prescribe, verse, verse 7. Arise, Lord. Think of the silliness of saying that. Arise, Lord. Are you asleep? Did you lose your contact lenses? What, I mean, right? But your heart is, God, please help, right? Could you get up and help me? Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. May it be true about you. May I say to you what is true about you and then believe it. So what does that do? It brings hope. And then it brings transformation. Why? Because you're saying, these are the circumstances, yet this is what God says. One of those is lying to me. Now, when I pray, and when I think, and when I process, and when I live my life, which one will I live in agreement with? The lies from the enemy, the circumstances, the brokenness, or the promises of God? So, Genesis 3, the devil brings about temptation to sin. They didn't have to sin, but he does. And this is what he said to them. And this is what he's going to say to you a million times if he says it once. Did God really say you know why he uses that? Because the circumstances are trying to tell you that God didn't really say it. So they fell, and they went into temptation. Years later, there's another man in a garden, and the enemy takes him and says, hey, I want to talk to you about how things are. And the uh, Bible says the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and three times the enemy says something to him from Scripture that's not true. And three times Jesus said, that's not at all what God says. This is what God says. So you can talk if you want, but I'm not going to listen to you. And the Bible says when he finished those three times, the devil left him for a season. So a couple things to learn before I pray for you. One, if the devil only left Jesus for a season and came back, 
what are the chances you think he's going to do that with you? So if you're like, I don't like this battle, I don't like this war, put your big boy pants on and fight afraid. I'm scared to go into the battle. Me too. Fight afraid. Turns out you can be, have a little bit of fear that says, I'm not, my, my heart wants to believe God, but I recognize the circumstances and that caused some trepidation and my emotions are, ah. But you know how you know you don't believe the fear and you believe God? You do it anyway. That's how you know. You take courage. God doesn't give it to you. You take it. We prayed the other night for family in our church, and Karen started the whole service with the violent, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it like wussies who lay down underneath the palm tree when nobody's looking with their sandals on, drunk from the margarita that they had at lunch. It's a paraphrase. Of course it doesn't say that. The violent take it by force. At some point, you have to let faith arise in you. You have to grab hold of that and say, I don't care what the enemy is saying. I don't care what the world is saying. I don't care what the circumstance is saying. I don't even care what my own heart is saying. I will believe in you, God, and I will see my day of deliverance, and I will see all of the inheritance you ever promised to me because you are true and you are faithful and everybody else is a liar, including me. You have to do that. No one will do it for you. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I'll pray for us. I hope I didn't make you mad, but I might have. So get over it. <laughs> no, come talk to me and I'll figure out what I did wrong and apologize and we'll move on. But it doesn't mean my sermon's not true. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us. But as we go forward, make a decision. Things are going to be different today. You got to get sick of it eventually and go, I don't care what the enemy's saying. I'm going to do what God's told me. And when you do that, the circumstances will begin to change. I've shared this a million times. Back in the back, we have a thermostat. One of them had gone dead this last week. I don't know if you guys felt it, but it got real warm in here because there was one, one air conditioner unit trying to, uh, trying to cool this entire massive room and it couldn't do it. So I had the guy come out and he looked at it and I said, are both air conditioners bad? He said, nope. He said, um, this one is bad, but I fixed it. And I said, what about the other one? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't able to do it. He said, yeah, but because it didn't have enough strength. He said it was fighting something that it could, not, it could not do alone. And I went, that's such an awesome sermon illustration. I think I'll use that on Sunday. <laughs> so what, what I'm, you know, the other one is me being broken completely. This one is God being for us. But there has to be the connection of my willingness to believe God and walk into the, the promises that he has said are true by being faithful in, in the light of all the things that are pushing back against me. And when you do that, you're no longer a, a, a thermometer that just indicates what's going around you. You become a thermostat that literally changes everything around you. That's what God has called you to be, an agent of change. Amen? Jesus, we love you. Lord, we know that sometimes you challenge us. Lord, you always invite us in, like Peter. Lord, um, he was, I know, Lord, you challenged him so many times, but you were always, always reminding him that he was part of you. And so, Lord, you've done that today. Lord, never, ever do you withdraw from us. Never, ever will you leave us and forsake us, Lord. You said even if we feel like orphans, you will come to us. You will never leave us alone. Jesus, that's true, and you're faithful. We thank you. But, Lord, we also know that you challenge us to grow up in the faith, 
to walk as men and women and no longer as children. Lord, because then we settle it for our own life, but Lord, then we can become um, ministers of reconciliation to everybody around us and to such a broken, hurting world. So Lord, do that. Grow us up so we can be useful in the kingdom to see not just our inheritance come, but the inheritance of everyone around us. And it's your name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we'll have our team up here. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.